Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. The White House is a swirling mess of chaos and disappointment. Not just this White House. Basically every presidential administration in living memory. What if the problem isn't the president? What if it's the presidency? This is Radio Atlantic. Hi, I'm Matt Thompson, executive editor of The Atlantic. With me here in D.C. is my esteemed co-host Jeffrey Goldberg, The Atlantic's editor-in-chief. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Matt. We have with us also, for the first time around the Radio Atlantic table, one of our staff writers, Elena Plot, who covers politics for The Atlantic. Hello, Elena. Hi, Matt. And with us is a guest from another podcast, uh, John <laughs> Dickerson, a host of many things. That, is that, is that, I, thought, I thought his show was called Stranger Things. Isn't he the host of Stranger Things? <laughs> I would like to be a host of Stranger that Things. That would be we cool. Just in our family, we just binged over the spring break. It's on not Stranger healthy Things. psychologically to binge on no. Stranger Things. And don't Things. do it the night before when you're living in strange quarters. So it was a, um, John, welcome to Radio Atlantic. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm happy to be out of my podcast bubble and in a new podcast bubble now. Well, we put you into a magazine bubble this month. Your piece, which is the cover story of the May issue of The Atlantic, is about the impossibility of the presidency. It is, of course, cliched to observe that the chaos of the White House at this particular moment in time. But people blame President Trump for the disarray in the White House. And we wanted to ask you, how much is just the job itself? In your story, you call the presidency the hardest job in the world. Why is it so hard? Well, there is all the things going on in the in the drama of President Trump. There are new dramas breaking out even as I speak right now. And one of the things about that is that it, it occludes our ability to look at the rest of the presidency. The reason the job has become so uh, difficult is that basically you've got I mean, two big problems. One is that the primary job of the president, which is to protect the country, uh, has gotten much more difficult and much more intense. So after obviously the presidency, uh, it, it got much bigger during the Civil War and then it kind of shrunk back. Then uh, during FDR, it basically exploded. And then after 9-11, it not only got bigger, but the number of threats, it wasn't just one slow-moving Soviet Union that had to be worried about. It was the threat could come through cyber, through the mail, through North Korean uh, nuclear weaponry. And so the presidency just on that one specific point uh, was uh, much more dangerous and much more on the president's plate. And then, of course, you have the growth of the presidency that has come just in the accretion of duties that have that have been both ceremonial and uh, policy-wise that have grown to the president, A, because our expectations have changed, and we can talk about that in all kinds of different ways. Um, and the expectations have been changed both by 
by the public and also by the people who run for the office who learned that the more you promise, the easier it is or the better chance you ha have of getting elected. But that also means your to-do list when you get into the job is quite long. Uh, and the abdication of the role traditionally assigned to Congress by the founders to be an active participant in government, um, that role has has really diminished into this kind of shriveled thing in which Congress struggles mightily to simply keep the lights on in government, which is the basic job that it can do. And it has not done the job of, of producing a budget and appropriations bills on time for more than 20 years. That's just the job. That, that's just the starting stakes for the job in Congress, let alone tackling any of the big problems. Every time Congress doesn't do something, it puts more on the president's plate. So that's why it's gotten harder. John, would you step back? I mean, you could step back as far as you want to go, but give us a sense of what the presidency, the size of the presidency, the physical size of the presidency uh, at the beginning of the uh, beginning of the FDR administration. Right. So just stepping back for a minute. First, the earth cooled. Then, you know, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when did dinosaurs uh, disappear? <laughs> right. um, so I think for me, one of the great moments in this uh, narrative is in 1938. So uh, basically, Roosevelt realizes that the presidency, he has no help. And so he, he um, commissions a committee to look at the executive branch and um, and all the uh, and the, all the agencies in the executive branch. So, the, you know, the, uh, the State Department, any of his cabinet agencies and um, and sort of give it a, a, a once over as if McKinsey were being brought in and the <laughs> Brownlow committee that looked at this. Essentially, the conclusion of the Brownlow committee was the president needs help. Now, it, 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 it had a lot of uh, words behind that, but that was the thrust of the multi-document um, report. And so um, Roosevelt asked Congress, because this was back when the executive branch, in order to enlarge itself, had to go to Congress for uh, money and approval, which now is, you know, presidents do all kinds of things without even thinking of Congress. But, but to do the basic first change in the office, programmatic change in the office of the presidency, since it was created, Eisenhower had to go to Congress and Congress, which was uh, had Democratic majority, said no. They said, mm. you're not getting what you want. You can neither reorganize the presidency and you can't get the staffers you want. And he was asking for a handful of staffers. I mean, he was not asking for less, I think, than a dozen. In the end, he gets six. But Roosevelt asked for this from Congress and basically people march in the streets. 300,000 telegrams are sent to the Congress. Uh, 100 or so people, many of whom are dressed up as Paul Revere, march down Pennsylvania Avenue um, decrying one-man rule and the idea that um, this was the president's uh, effort to basically grab more power for the presidency. Uh, Roosevelt was so offended by uh, the fact that Democrats of his own party uh, turned down his request for a, fall, uh, a few small staffers that he that he had a fireside chat in which he promised to purge the Democratic Party of those Democrats, which was itself an extraordinary thing. The Democratic Party responded by basically giving him a raspberry. Uh, basically, none of the candidates he backed. None of the Democrats he backed against other Democrats won, um, and he ultimately had to basically go begging to Congress. He got six staffers, and Congress said, you can get them and reorganize the presidency, but for two years, and then we're going to reevaluate, and if we don't like it, it has to go back to the old way. Um, and then that kind of opened the door, though, plus the Second World War, um, which basically the Second World War is what does it, um, to the expansion of the presidency and, and the national security state. Uh, which was then in, in increased by various subsequent presidents, um, ended up really mushrooming the job. We expect a lot of things 
from a president. And the campaign is an audition for a certain type of job. What does a campaign test a president for? And how does that differ from what a president actually needs to fill the role? This is in some ways the genesis of this of this whole project, which Jeffrey and I have talked about in one form or another over the years, um, you know, in green rooms. And I'd like to say in bars just to up the nature of the the conversation. Yeah, but mainly had. green rooms. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, <laughs> green rooms and other hothouses of uh, elite opinion. But I um, many years ago wrote uh, a series um, for Slate about uh, the presidency and how basically in campaigns we don't test for the attributes uh, that are required in the presidency. And the more I've thought about that and then covered presidencies and then watched certainly the last campaign in 16, basically the system selects for people who lack the attributes for the job that they then go in to have. And so to the two big causes of trouble here are, one, the primary system, which um, essentially accentuates the most ideologically uh, powerful voices in a party. And now when the presidency was first designed for the, for, and depending on where you want to put the time down, for either, you know, 60 years or 100 years, the idea was you weren't supposed to run for office. Anybody who had the virtue to be a president wouldn't go asking for votes. And the idea was, the norm was, that that any president who um, sort of had to ask for votes from the people would be um, basically selling themselves um, and setting up the conditions perhaps for going into office and being beholden to those people instead of acting with reason and virtue. Well, that's obviously gone out the window and the primaries helped um, help basically put that in the grave. And the second thing, of course, is television. So you've got candidates who are conditioned for two years to play to the crowd uh, and always play to the crowd and claim in greater and greater. It's like somebody who wears cologne. You know, the, at first they put a little on and then after a couple of weeks, they're, you, you know, they're just turning the bottle upside down over their head because they become inured to the mm. to the strength <laughs> of the cologne. And this is true with presidential promises. At first, they were sort of modest in scope. And then you have Donald Trump proclaiming at his convention, I alone can fix it. Um, and the it is all problems known to man. Um, so and I just quickly television, of course, accentuates this, making it more of a show. And there's this wonderful um, symbiotic relationship between the growth of Hollywood tricks and the way in which campaigns both mirror those tricks and then employ those tricks and the way in which the voters become used to and have expectations for the kinds of action hero performances by a president that that are all very much shaped by popular culture. So there is a hmm. there's kind of a straight line in a way from Kennedy in West Virginia in 1960 to Donald Trump uh, and his reality show presidential campaign and presidency, all of which accentuates doing things that are entertaining <laughs> rather than the slow, boring thing of a presidency, which is about management, persuasion, uh, contemplation, restraint, none of which a campaign uh, encourages. So, John, um, one thing I loved you pointed out in your piece was just the sheer difference in vocabulary about campaigns. We once stood for office. Now we run for office. And I was wondering if you, through your reporting research, kind of arrived at what you thought was the appropriate middle ground between those two things to both, you know, test a candidate's rhetoric, pomp and whatnot, but also his um, fitness for office. It's a great question. I spent a lot of time, well, talking to um, presidents about this and also Gautam Makunda from from Harvard who wrote a whole book about um, – and, and the book 
spends a lot of time looking at the way corporations pick for um, executives and the way presidencies do. And the, the one of the major things he he points out is that in corporations, when you get down to the to the five who are in you know the running to be CEO, they have all by their careers and patterns and habits of mind achieved, you know, 90% of CEO-ness because they've just been basically tested by the process. And so they are all more or less going to be fine. Um, now, the difference between, say, Lewis Gerstner and, you know, Lewis Smith, um, there may be that extra 10% that makes a fantastic CEO. But if the second best person was picked, they may not be fantastic, but they would still be pretty good because they would have a lot of the attributes required to run that corporation um, because they had kind of come up through a system. And even if you are selected across companies, you are honed. And one of the things that's honed is your adaptability, your creativity. So it's not just that you're a cookie cutter. It's not just the elevation of the organizational man, but there is a way in which corporations test. Presidencies and the way we elect presidents don't test for much of anything anymore other than this kind of public salesmanship part of the job. Now, that's a crucial part of the presidency. We can very quickly come up with moments when the president's rhetoric and the president's sense of moment in a national crisis uh, have been have made the difference. Um, and so it's not that that's not a part of the job. It's just that it's gotten out of shape in terms of the priorities and in terms of both the way we select for that priority and also the way in which presidents, when they come into office, and we all know this is true of modern presidents, when things go wrong, they say, well, you know, they have a meeting with their communication staff and they say, you know, if we just uh, talked about this differently, President Obama um, often used to say that and would say you know, when asked what his mistake was in his after the healthcare um, uh, debacle, the first debacle, not the second, the first being the 2010 election, um, he said, you know, basically we didn't communicate with people. I think the the basic challenges to have enough sizzle and enough steak. So enough sizzle to both get elected and to have the what Nixon called uh, the lift of the driving dream, which is to give people a sense that their government is working uh, for them in the grooves of the American tradition um, and to make them feel proud about their White House and their presidency, if for no other reason than to leave them alone. <laughs> because if you if you think that they're swinging in Washington for you, you can go about living your life and, and kind of leave Washington alone to have enough of that and then have enough of the boring stuff, which includes schmoozing with politicians, which is a bootless pursuit in a lot of cases because of partisanship. Um, but those other skills would be a political skill, which is both knowing how to read the landscape and work the kind of quote unquote inside game. That would not only mean with respect to Congress, but also your cabinet, basically knowing how to be a leader of men and women, how to imprint your will on them, give them enough autonomy to exercise their own sense of creativity and their own sense of mission, but within, you know, a framework that you've set, all stuff that we, we, that leaders talk about, but that there is no rule book or training manual for a presidency. Um, and then finally, to basically know the mix of management, internal persuasion and showmanship um, and kind of have that balance right in terms of where you put your energy uh, as a president. John, in the modern era, who did it well? Huh. Well, you can it, include Coolidge in the modern era if that makes it yeah. easier for you. <laughs> <laughs> right. I love Coolidge's quote, which is basically that the um, – I'll, I'll butcher it slightly, but the greatest thing he did often was minding his own business. Um, 
You know, this is a part of what this piece is about and about what this entire conversation is about, which is what does well mean? Mm. So, for example, um, you know, if you think of disaster relief under President Obama, you can either think of it as the BP oil spill or you can think of it as the other thing that you can't think of, which is to say you can't think of other natural disasters that the Obama uh, team messed up because Craig Fugate at FEMA was – super dedicated, super focused, and basically managed all the disasters that happened on Obama's watch. He showed up and did the ceremonial part of the presidency. Um, but but one of the reasons the presidency has ballooned is you have a president who is on the hook there for an oil spill he had nothing to do with. It, it was not the, the fault of the presidency, and yet he was absolutely on the hook for for plugging that leak. Um, and so the question is whether a president really legitimately uh, should be responsible for that. Um, you have to have a national response, yes. But to the extent that he paid a political price for that, it may be a part of the way in which the presidency is unrealistic. What, what, one, think, one, John, one, yeah. let me reframe the question. Who's your favorite president? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think – no, but I think I think when you look at um, – Just say Coolidge and we'll be done with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, no. I mean, you know, obviously – Dispositionally obviously, Coolidge. Yeah. Obviously, Lincoln, you know, was pretty extraordinary. Uh, you know – I mean, so, but this is what's, I mean, obviously I can go on and on, but but when, if you look at FDR and some of the things he did, so FDR was obviously considered for, uh, correctly as a great president. But if you look at some of the things he did with, let's try, uh, you know, the court packing or the attempt to purge Democrats from his own party, in today's world, if a president tried to do that, ca- entire cable channels would melt, um, <laughs> both because of the extreme power grab in trying to pack the courts and then the utter and massive and complete catastrophic failure for FDR. I mean, he had massive failures in his presidency that we would never allow presidents to recover from here. Um, and so, uh, you know, so that that um, is just when you think about measuring presidents, it's also kind of deciding how you want to measure them within their time. And also FDR's capacity for um, for basically telling straight out lies to both his allies and his opponents um, was uh, was extraordinary. And in a today's age, he would never have been able to get away with. Um, I think Reagan is – time and again, people, both Democrats and Republicans, talk about Reagan and his ability to basically – you know, I was talking to somebody in the Obama administration who's, who is a big fan of the president's and his intellectual <laughs> approach to everything. But he said, you know, with Reagan, you knew – even if you didn't talk to him for a year, you know, he basically wanted to cut taxes, shrink government and beat the communists. And basically every day, if you woke up and said, what am I doing in my job to achieve those three goals? You were in pretty good shape. You knew you were going to be doing the right thing. And so the entire administration had that organizing principle. And the the criticism of President Obama was that everything was being because of the president's um, brain power, his interest. Uh, his sense that this was the best way to do things and the complexities of, you know, it was easier when you had one, when you had the Soviet Union in a way in terms of just easier as a matter of framing your your to-do list. Um, It's a lot harder when you have, you know, nation states that are falling apart and um, and non-state actors and so forth. So, um, but but when talking to people about that organizational direction given by uh, a president, Reagan comes up again and again. So, Talking about how we measure presidents, I want to get your sense of how the press has 
changed and it impacted how we look at presidents. I loved your line, the press has a way of describing debate as discord. What's your sense of <laughs> when that sort of palace intrigue incentive structure started? And it, I mean, is it fair to say that the press does have a way of dictating what our metrics are for viewing presidents? Well, I mean, the press was, of course, has, has just always been awful, right? So, if I mean, if you look at the – if you look, company I mean, if you, excluded. Tough but fair. Yeah. Oh, present company included. <laughs> What's the difference? Tough but fair. But, I mean, if you look at – because, of course, the press for so long was highly partisan. So, you know, if you look at the, the Washington administration um, – his critics in the press, some of whom had been given leaks by you know Thomas Jefferson, were just savage. I mean, no current, uh, even Sean Hannity at his at his most well rested and um, and fully energized, could not attack President Obama the way James uh, Thompson Calendar did uh, uh, either Washington or Adams. So, but then in the era of of kind of. Um, kind of um, modern press. I think what basically, I think Kennedy is responsible for a lot of this. And I think, um, I mean, as soon as you started doing the inside heroic man theory of presidents and the kind of, uh, when I worked at Time, you know, uh, one of my editors used to say there's the fallacy of the key moment. And he was making this case when he was making basically the argument, you have to come up with a key moment for your lead. So I understand that this key moment probably was not the key moment or that it's a lot more complex, but you need to tell a story and it's got to begin somewhere. And to the extent that we have these heroic moments of presidencies in news magazine writing and then in biographies, it accentuated this idea that the president alone in a room is the man, the single man who solves the extraordinary problem. And even and Kennedy said the essence of the decision is oblique even to the decision maker, um, which is to say you don't know a lot of times uh, how these decisions get made. But the way we have covered it starting really, I feel like with Kennedy, although if I thought about it more, I'm sure um, uh, I could start it somewhere else. But um, that kind of president as hero is one problem. And then basically, then you get the campaignization of um, presidencies now, where in campaigns, it's always about who's up, who's down. And that essentially has has moved into coverage of the presidency. And then now with the hyper-partisanship, it's possible to cover. And in fact, you can read stories about fights between the president and Congress and have no idea the actual thing over which they are fighting. Um, but just that the Democrats wanted this um, you know, the Democrats wanted this to happen in 30 days and the president wanted it to happen in 90 days. And it'll be a, this huge story about Trump versus Schumer. And you'll have no idea why 90 versus 30 days was important in the context of the debate over extending government funding, um, because it's all just basically about this is what the one side said and this is what the other side said. Uh, Elaine, I want to ask Elaine a question because she's a young um, and we're, we're, we're middles. Um, but I mean, could you imagine a situation, uh, in America in which a president purposely made him or herself a receding presence in American culture, which is to say a president who doesn't play the role of the, the monarch and go to every, um, tragedy and go to every hurricane and and be an action figure on TV. Do you think that people are so, um, especially your age, but I, I suppose it's sort of a general, general multi-generational question. Uh, people are so used to the president as um, consoler-in-chief, uh, cheerleader-in-chief, that, 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 that 
a president who actually said, you know what, I'm not going to say anything in public this week because I got nothing to say. Do you think people would accept that? Or do you think that's that, that, that we just, our expectations are so outsized now that you can't even imagine? I don't think people would accept it at all. I can't fathom a scenario in which, like Eisenhower, Trump, or a succeeding president were to say, I'm actually going to let FEMA take care of things because I trust my director and I'm going to stay in the background vis-a-vis this or that natural disaster. I think people would be outraged. And I actually think the press would be in a corresponding way, especially people in my generation. I think we're so conditioned to kind of say, oh, the president is not present in this crucial moment. He's for playing golf. The country. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, it seems like I, I was so interested reading that Eisenhower very much said in one one natural disaster or another, I am going to stick in the background. I am. I think he was playing golf in that moment. I, I mean, pundits would have their fill of airtime for days and days and days talking about that alone. And I don't know what would have to change. Um for that to no longer be the scenario. One thing I wonder about, and this is a question for uh, for the thought experiment for you, Elena, also a question for you, John. Um, What is to prevent a president from being fully the performative, from being the monarch, as Jeff put it? I mean, this argument comes up from time to time that America should have. We should just actually... That we should just name... Beyonce should just be our monarch (laughs) and that she should... We should should be all decide that Beyonce was the monarch? I mean, yeah, obviously. I I must have missed that meeting. Uh, John, did you hear about that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Run this election. Which way do you think? No, I mean, fine. I'm sure she would win, but I'm just saying, like, uh, I didn't know that that was in the cards. But what's to prevent a president from saying actually the converse? Not that I want to recede from the job. Oh, I I want to do is perform. I just want to be the the figurehead, and I've got a very capable bureaucrat that's that's going to delete all the boring parts and n- navigate all the probabilities that Obama was talking about. Um, there's this wonderful litany, John, in your piece of the five days around the White House Correspondents' Dinner in April of 2011 when um, Obama was chairing the National Security Council time after time, but also doing an education policy speech, meeting with the leaders of Denmark, Brazil, and Panama, trying to avoid a government shutdown, um, doing a budget speech, immigration reform meetings. And then there were all these public events that you could just siphon off and have someone be fully dedicated to, No. Well, it depends. And again, it depends on our expectations. Um, You know, going back just briefly to Eisenhower, he played 900 days of golf in his two years. That's like almost a third of each year he played golf. He would disappear to to Augusta for weeks at a time to go play golf. And yeah, he got a little grief at the end of his presidency and Kennedy wouldn't be caught dead uh, carrying a golf club because of the sort of blowback after Eisenhower. But the expectations were um, just so different now. What if somebody tried to just be performative? Well, I mean, the problem is, would that carry, would the bureauc- I mean, in a sense, we're, by the way, we're, we're seeing a bit of that kind of an experiment now, except that the bureaucrat is just not being assigned. So well, you know, you remember there was a great moment when, uh, when, uh, was it, I can't remember who was being recruited for the, this vice presidency. Maybe it was Kasich. Uh, Kasich. Kasich, yeah. And, and he was talking to a Trump, uh, campaign official and, and, and Kasich was told, well, the vice president will be in charge of foreign policy and domestic policy. And then, and he said, well, what does the president do? And the president would be in charge of making America great again. Um, so, so <laughs> in theory, the, the Trump people ha- had this model sort of in mind, but it didn't actually work out that way. After the break, we'll turn to the Trump presidency and ask John how this administration is testing the president's job.
So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Right. Now, John, we've talked broadly about the challenges of the presidency. How does the Trump administration in particular fit in? Well, it is, I mean, one of the th- reasons we uh, became enthusiastic with this piece beyond the fact that we've, we'd all signed on to it is that, you know, the president is putting us through a test of the presidency. And there are a lot of beliefs and standards over time that are now getting a full, a full testing and we'll see if they work out. I mean, one of the jobs of the presidency is to be to have a system in place and have people working for you so that when the emergency hits, you've got a team in place that can handle it. Well, uh, thank God we have not had yet that emergency that was not otherwise self-created to test the system. But the second uh, among the many other duties of the presidency and the system is that you're supposed to have a system in place so that you can tackle proactively the problems facing America. And we certainly have a great number of them. And you hope not to exacerbate them, whether it's entitlement, whether it's climate change, whether it's uh, the changing workforce in America, the, the, you know, numbers of things that that would benefit from the convening power of a president, the rhetorical power of a president to ask the country to do what would be required to take on some of these challenges. Um, All of that is basically fallow. Um, We also have in a country in which we have extraordinary income inequality and also where you have um, either overt or simmering uh, racial tensions and certainly inequities that are um, that are exacerbated by uh, disunity or racial division, it has traditionally been the president's job to work towards unity um, on on the racial front, but also as we are more polarized now in some ways by party and by ideology than we are by race, um, uh, it has traditionally been the president's job to rush in there and be the president of the entire country. What Donald Trump is doing Really, he is our first base only president in the modern era, which I say to protect myself. But, you know, um, which is to say a president who basically cares about his base, who doesn't really even except for very, very, very rarely make the traditional noises a president does about unifying the country behind a common set of ideas. I mean, he would like the country to unify, but basically to unify behind what he would wants them to unify behind. Um, and that's that's extraordinary. And all of that stuff is not being done. And the question is, well, what's the cost? cost of that. Um, and, and that is a bit of a test of your question, Matt. I think that the, if you had a president who tried to do this, sort of assign the bureaucrat and, um, and then be the figurehead, the problem is if one of the roles of the president is to work Congress, and we can debate whether that's even possible anymore given the way Congress is so configured, you can't go back to the Johnson model or any previous president because they had people they could work with. They could work with the other party. There were people were less ideologically homogeneous in their own parties. So a president can't really do that. But to the extent that a president must work with Congress, um, you need the guy with the ceremonial power because his ceremonial power is what gives you and elevates you in your life. So if he's got the Beyonce power, you want some of that sprinkled on your head because you have your own ego needs and you want to get reelected. 
And so simply achieving things the way a bureaucrat would do it would actually not give you the the gold dust you need to both get the fame you want and then to get the reelection power you want. Um, but again, because things are so partisan, um, I'd have to think that through a little bit more in terms of um, you'd have to break the partisan problem we have right now as well as um, – you know, those other things that I ran into what, about having this separated power structure. But this is an interesting point, John. As you point out, we are living a very unique version of this thought experiment. Um, call him Schrodinger's president because Trump is both <laughs> in the picture and out of the picture at once, curiously. Elena, I have a question for you about this. Just the other day, you and our colleague Rob Meyer broke a big scoop about an occurrence within the EPA. Um, Scott Pruitt, the EPA administrator, kind of bypassing the White House to uh, give raises to some key aides after the White House has formally considered the request and dismissed it. Um, once this information got to the White House, it became part of a current firestorm that has surrounded the EPA and Pruitt's role as its head. Um, but it was one of those scenarios where we see both at once um, an absent president – <laughs> and the president being routed around and a a White House that very much wants to be in the picture <laughs> and has its own agenda. Um, what does President Trump illustrate to you about how an executive might inhabit this seat <laughs> performatively? Well, I think taking this um... – this, how all of this unfolded with Scott Pruitt. Say they had gone to the White House with another another request, something less controversial, didn't have to do with raises or taxpayer monies or anything like that. Um, I don't know, maybe to start a new study about a contaminant or something. And for some reason, they went to the White House with this request and the White House said no. Um, I think for somebody like President Trump and based on people I talked to, to in the White House, to be defied like that is a huge problem. And I actually think this president, um, with regard to his cabinet, would prefer to never be asked in the first place huh. because then he can um, kind of slough off all blame for whatever may go horribly awry. Um, he can also claim credit, though, if it goes really well and says, look, that's my cabinet person. I hired the best people. I'm wonderful. Um but from what I can tell, and I know this um, having profiled Ryan Zinke too, they actually think that the less you tell this president, the better, um, because everything bad that happens falls on you. Which if we're talking about, you know, whether it's the president's separateness from his cabinet, from Congress, might not be the worst thing in the entire world. Maybe not for the motivations that um, drive Trump in particular, but it's not the worst thing to talk about. Hmm. The um, uh, uh, one of my favorite formulations in your piece, John, was the president is the jumpy man who presses the elevator <laughs> button a second time, then a third time with his umbrella. It feels good. It looks like action. But the elevator does not move faster. Um, you mentioned the imperatives that heap upon the head of the president for a sense of action, for the performance of activity um, at any given point. Um do you think that there's an opportunity for a president after Trump, given how much action and chaos and activity and, um, and ferment there is at any given moment? Do you think that there's an opportunity for the next 
president to slow well, down? To do nothing? I think, <laughs> <laughs> and no, never I give think, a press conference? Well, you know, the, the, the biggest opportunity is the, is the opportunity that still is before President Trump. It's like, there's, it's like there's a trunk over across the room, which all he has to do is open and take out the magic weapon, which is that he is not ideologically um, fixed to anything. And that, in a sense, could be magic because he could make his own coalitions across parties and do all kinds of things. I mean, he would he would break Congress up into a crazy, wonderful um, uh, kind of place of, of maybe active and useful chaos if he decided to run his White House in the way some people thought he might, which is in a non, totally non-ideological way. Now, he'd run into some little problems like the Speaker of the House might not, um, uh, you know, might not allow votes to come to the floor and, and Mitch McConnell might block him too. But you know what? President Trump has a pretty good ability to use the bully pulpit and to um, shame and put punishment on um, uh, on lawmakers. And so you could see now he would run afoul probably of Fox News. And, and but I mean, he he could do because he is not ideologically tied to a party or to a set of ideological uh, beliefs. He could try to to, to kind of mix and, and match things. You know what else I he think, could do, John? It's really interesting. It just struck me. He does. He could be the president who doesn't go to the hurricane and he could say, I'm not going to the hurricane. I got people to well, go to he, the hurricane. He kind of didn't. I mean, in Puerto well, Rico, I mean, he went he to Puerto Rico, and then of course he threw paper towels, and we remember all that. Right. But he does. I mean, he still actually performs. He still does well, some of the performances, and that's interesting to me. And it would be that would be a great service, by the way, he, if he just he, said, he, right, "I don't. To, why do I have to do this? It's just getting in the well, way." Right. That's the Mitch Daniels piece. Mitch Daniels was the former OMB director, governor of Indiana, former political director under um, under Reagan basically said, you have to pare the job down to about three things. And the new president has to basically said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try and increase prosperity in America, um, level the playing field uh, and keep you all safe and everything else. Uh, I love you. I you Americans out there, you're awesome. And here's how I'm going to delegate these parts of the job that are ceremonial and substantive to various different people. You're going to get to know them well. They're going to be really interesting, but I'm focused on on these three core things. Um, and to do that at the front end, President Trump has done it in this interesting way, which is he has in effect done a lot of that. He has not done those things we expect the president to do on the ceremonial or the unity front. But then, um, and he's certainly not done what I talked about in terms of breaking through the parties. Um, as some people kind of uh, thought he could or might, given his interesting political background. But he's also not really been effectively formulating his group to meet the promises of his own presidency. If you think about the things that he promised that he would do, he promised that he would drain the swamp. The swamp is in very good working order. Um, and it reminds me very much of, I mean, we not only uh, in Elena's great work on uh, Pruitt, but also um, and and because what is Pruitt doing? Basically, he is both personally and for his staff, basically gaming the system to enrich themselves um, or to make things easier for themselves than the system would otherwise have allowed. That was the one of the great condemnations of the president's inaugural address, which is that people who'd been in the swamp too long had done things and bent the rules for themselves and not for the forgotten men and women. And if you look at Zinke, Shulkin, Pruitt, and then the president himself in terms of what he has chosen not to do to unwind himself from his family's own connections to his presidency, that is all what he was supposedly criticizing in his State of the Union. Um, and so... He has not put his energies and his administration's design 
towards the goal of meeting the the things that he said he wanted to fix. And also the forgotten men and women, if you look at the, the policies he's um, put forward, other than if you follow his argument and and um, and agree to his argument that basically reducing regulations and lowering corporate taxes will in in the end help the forgotten men and women. Um, they, if you buy that, then he has in fact done things for them. But there is a lot and a great deal that he could have done for the forgotten men and women, including in the health care bill, which was really not guided, directed towards them. In many ways, it would have punished them had it been passed. So if he's not doing the ceremonial job, what is he doing? And is he doing things with his free time that align with what he promised that he would do. Uh, and that's um, there's not a whole heck of a lot of evidence. What he ends up being is a pretty conventional Republican president. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, Grover Norquist said that, that at one point, I think before 12 or 16, I can't remember, he said, we just want somebody with a warm hand who can sign Paul Ryan's budgets. Um, and it turns out Paul Ryan's budget is not even what Republicans like if you <laughs> if you look at this most recent spending bill. So, um we are seeing an experiment going on, but what is the other stuff that's getting done with the free time that's not being, you know, that's been uh, that's been gotten by not doing the other parts of the presidency? Well, John, one thing I wanted to ask, um, going back to Congress, and I know this was just a, a hypothetical you threw out, but you know, saying that McConnell or Ryan might not bring um, Trump's priorities to the floor. I actually, through my time covering the Hill, see it as the opposite, that Ryan and McConnell are so scared of bringing anything to the floor that doesn't have cover from the White House. And I, I was wondering how you think that Congress and the presidency can work as intended, can work effectively if Congress won't move on something without White House approval, essentially. How do you get out of that? Yeah. So mine was in that in that hypothetical I was playing out where where Trump makes deals with basically the mushy middle. So in which he's he's putting together deals like comprehensive immigration reform that that passed the Senate. If the president has just said, I'd like to sign that. Um, it's not I'm not certain that Paul Ryan's going to bring that to the floor in the House. Um, so that's what I meant in terms of um, if the president went down a different road. Given the road that he is going down, I think which he is would, the, just an aside. What, oh, you think Ryan? Would? <laughs> I really do. Well, he, I, yeah, I don't know. He's been pretty timid about doing anything that wouldn't get a majority of his own conference, and he would that wouldn't have gotten a majority of his conference. But, um, but maybe you know, if the president threw his back into it. Um, but anyway, given where we are right now, which is that the president is not doing anything. You know, it's amazing when you think again about what the president promised that he would come to Washington. He made the promise every candidate does, which he'll come to Washington, get everybody in the room, get them to agree. He never really even got the people into the room. I mean, to the extent that we have had, quote unquote, getting everyone in the room moments, they've been like the meeting the president held on immigration and on on gun control, gun rights, gun safety, however you want to phrase it. And in both of those, the president said a bunch of things that ended up never to come to pass. Um, so he has not really tried to work with the other side or put deals together. But in terms of your point about wanting cover, that's exactly right. I mean, they're terrified that the president will turn on Congress and will turn on members. Um, I mean, it's interesting given that his approval rating in the country was bouncing around in the 30s for a while. He nevertheless had control over Congress as if his approval rating was 100 percent. And that's because he has such high, not only a relatively high approval rating among Republicans, but a super high approval rating among enthusiastic Republicans who can primary sitting members of Congress, um, which is funny when you think about uh, the, the examples of where that hasn't worked out. I mean, obviously, if he had the Midas touch, he would have gotten Roy Moore uh, elected. Um, but they are fearful that if the president puts his finger on you um, in a negative way on Twitter, 
that can get you a primary opponent. It can cause you to have to raise $2 million more million fighting off a primary opponent or fighting off your local version of Sean Hannity, who's now coming at you because the president uh, has declared you, you know, not in sync with his thinking. Um, and then I think the other reason they want, Ryan and McConnell want buy-in from the White House is they're tired of saying, okay, we would like A, B, and C. And then the president, like on healthcare, saying it's too mean. Um, you know, the president saying, well, no, I now want D. And then having to shuffle over to D and the president saying, why didn't you give me A, B, and C? Uh, and so they have tried to get kind of things locked down so that they don't, you know, get get undermined. And we've seen basically time and again uh, that they that they kind of have been by by the president as he just kind of sloshes around in different positions. Well, I would recommend to our listeners that if they I think we've not, solved all the problems. Yeah, we've solved all the problems of the presidency. Job, and clearly, guys. it's just you know, just do do what President Trump does. It's only with a secret bureaucrat. With Beyonce, also. yeah, <laughs> and Beyonce. Um, but uh, if you haven't read John Dickerson's fantastic cover story in the May issue of the Atlantic, do. And now I turn to the question that I ask at the end of every Radio Atlantic episode: What is it that you have heard, read, listened to, watched, experienced, or seen recently that you do not want to forget? I want to play a very relevant keeper from our listener David from Oregon, who has a book recommendation for us: Lincoln on Leadership: Executive Strategies for Tough Times, an out-of-print book by Donald T. Phillips. I've read it a number of times over the years, but I'm reading it again. Um, and uh, in these times that we're facing here in the U.S. of A., uh, it's refreshing and it's comforting to know there is a standard of a leader who took his job and his responsibilities seriously. I especially commend his discussion of how Lincoln dealt with personnel issues, in particular, his letter to Major General Joseph Hooker from January 1863. It is just amazing and instructive about what a true leader he was. Thank you. We'll drop a link to a copy of that letter in our show notes so you can check it out as a taste of Don Phillips' book. David, thank you. And listeners, stay tuned to the credits so you can figure out how to leave us a keeper. And now to John. What would you like to keep? Uh, what would I like to keep? Well, I think the the um, I, I guess it's uh, educated by Tara Westover, which I guess it's now been well. Anyway, uh, wrote it, read it a little while ago, but um, it has really stuck with me both as a as a piece of writing, as a story about her life, um, and as uh, as. Uh, and also listening to her talk about the process of writing it, which I interviewed her about the book. And that's really um, that's really stuck with me uh, recently. Um, and then I'm going to shovel in another one, which is this book, Meltdown, which is about complicated systems and why they break down Ooh. and how um, and how there is a kind of DNA to complicated and complex systems that can be studied and measured. Um, and since I've just spent all this time on um, on the presidency, which is itself a super complicated um, system, uh, this was a really interesting book in that context uh, as well. So those are my two, those are my Fantastic. two things. Fantastic. And we will drop the links in the show notes. Elena, what do you not want to forget? I just finished reading Lincoln and the Bardo by George mm. Saunders. Um, I couldn't put it down. I read it in two days. But I don't know if the image of President Lincoln holding his deceased child in his arms just for kind of one last conversation before they parted for good will ever leave me. Mm. 
All right. Sorry for such a dour no, note. It's okay. We can bring it down. <laughs> no, we've had some, we've had some real downers. That. Don't worry. For that. Jeff, Don't worry. Jeff, what is your key? Uh, I'm going to stay on the theme. Um, when we were working on John's piece, his cover story, um, I went back and watched much of the not so old, but old enough HBO uh, series on John Adams, uh, which is just fantastic. Paul Giamatti. Um, it's just, it's just fantastic. It's worth watching many, many hours, uh, but it's, but it's worth it. There was one moment, um, in which, uh, I'll, I'll, this sort of frames out this issue, uh, that we were talking about. One moment when John Adams has completed his term, um, steps out of the White House, uh, a carriage pulls up, a, a regular commercial carriage. <laughs> he gets on the carriage. People look at him as if uh, they, they sort of recognize him somewhere, and he says, "Yes, it's me." Um, and then they and then he, and he takes the carriage That's off amazing. from the White House, you know, from the front stoop of the White House, and um, heads back to Boston. And the, and I just you know you watch that and you think, you know, my God, the the, the presidency, it's 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 a, it's an understatement of the century to say the presidency has changed. But that was it was a modest office for um, people who were meant to position themselves in the world in a modest way, but it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant miniseries. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> and you pulled that move before, Jeff. I've heard it. Um, what? Um, yes, it's me. <laughs> oh, 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 personally. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yes, it's me. You all have heard the adage, um, sing like no one is listening, love like you've never been hurt, dance like nobody's watching, and live like it's heaven That's on a bumper earth. sticker on your bicycle. Isn't yes, that? Yeah. something like that. Um, I want to take that, but substitute it with sing like Tiffany Haddish, love like Tiffany Haddish, dance like Tiffany Haddish, and live like Tiffany Haddish. I guess we're having Tiffany Haddish on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to have Tiffany Haddish yeah, on the show. Yeah, we'll, we'll try to get that so for you, the, Matt. So the occasion in part is just that Tiffany Haddish is having a moment of performing celebrity, to speak another topic from this from this episode, um, that is going to go down in history, in the books, in the annals of celebrity, is just a legendary moment. She is so delightful in every late night performance that you hear her in, every SNL monologue that she gives. She is pure unadulterated joy, humor, and fun. Katie Weaver did a fantastic profile of her in GQ recently that I will drop in the show notes um, for more of a sense of what makes Tiffany tick. But uh, Tiffany Haddish in 2018, we're going to be talking about it for a while. And, you know, she's in Girls Trip. She is like the same person she is in real life, right? So, Do you know her, John? John Dickerson? No, not not at all. Oh, come know, on, you know but... all the famous people. <laughs> no, 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 no. But this is, I mean, you, one you of could the... come on. You could come on the podcast again when we have Tiffany Haddish. Okay? <laughs> one of the things that the piece is very good at is distilling where Tiffany Haddish's persona begins and where Tiffany Haddish's life ends. Yeah. Um, at any rate, fantastic. John Dickerson. Thank you very much for joining us. Come back again. Contributing editor of The Atlantic, by the way. Yeah, Uh, right. Contributing editor of The Atlantic here. Elena Plott, thank you for your spectacular reporting and you're joining us this episode. Jeff Goldberg, thanks as always. Thank you, Matt. And we'll see you next week. That'll do it for this week's Radio Atlantic. This episode was produced and edited by Kevin Townsend with production support from Kim Lau. Our executive producer of Atlantic Podcasts is Catherine Wells. Thanks as always to my esteemed co-host Jeffrey Goldberg and to our colleague Elena Plott for joining us. Thanks also to John Dickerson for stepping out of all the host chairs and being a delightful guest on our show. You can catch John every weekday morning on CBS This Morning and hear him every week with the delightful crew at the Slate Political Gab Fest. What do you not want to forget? Leave us a voicemail with your keeper at 202-266-7600. Don't forget your contact info and feel free to tell us how we're doing. 
Check us out at facebook.com slash radio Atlantic and the Atlantic.com slash radio. Catch those show notes in the episode description. And if you like what you're hearing, rate and review us in Apple Podcasts and subscribe in your preferred podcast app. But most importantly, thank you for listening. May you dance like Tiffany Haddish, sing like Tiffany Haddish, love like Tiffany Haddish, and maybe one day even hang out with Tiffany Haddish. We'll see you next week. <laughs>